If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. I find it really quite staggering that we are so convinced that witchcraft exists in 1685 that a death sentence can be handed down by a London judge. And yet that's only two years before Principia Mathematica, the foundation work of modern science, is published. That was Ian Mortimer discussing England at the time of the restoration of Charles II. It was a highly political act to define a conflict as a civil war or as a rebellion. And these uses of terms are almost always about legitimacy and authority. And that was David Armitage reflecting on civil wars through history. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of May 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first guest this week is one of Britain's most successful practitioners of popular history. Ian Mortimer is an author and historian whose many books include the acclaimed Time Traveller's Guide series, which have previously introduced readers to life in medieval and Elizabethan England. He's now taken the series forward 100 years or so, with a guide to the Restoration Era. And he spoke to our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Ian, you've written Time Traveller's Guides about Elizabethan England and the Middle Ages, and now Restoration Britain is your next stop between 1660 and 1700. Can you situate us a bit in time and tell us a bit about what was going on? Oh, well, the, the key to this is the very word restoration, because so much happened with that return of Charles II in 1660. I mean, if you think that in 1659, there was no such thing as a king of England. There were no bishops in uh, England or in Scotland. Um, there were no church courts. A lot of the customs of England were basically abolished by Parliament. There was the residual uh, uh, legacy of uh, a Puritan government so that still on the statute books, you have measures like uh, hanging people for adultery, which although rare, did actually happen. So you go in that year, 1660, from Cromwell's Puritan government, although Cromwell was dead by then, to this restored monarchy and the reaction against all that Puritan repression. And it is, of course, a time of enormous exuberance as a result. Ostentatious expenditure comes back and uh, royalty comes back and hierarchy comes back and society is allowed to expand and loosen up in lots of ways. So what drew you, um, after you've written on Elizabethan England and the medieval period, um, what drew you now to Restoration Britain for your next stop? I think the restoration through to the Regency period is this one long, glorious sweep, and I wanted to write about it 
And it just struck me that since my PhD is in the social history of 17th century England, medical history in 17th century England, then it would be silly to uh, bypass the 17th century and go straight for the Regency period, just do one end of this sort of period from 1663 to 1830. And it struck me that much better would be to do the first part and then the last part, because the whole period um, between the Restoration uh, and the, the discovery of science, as it were, and then this new phase, which is really represented by railways and breaking down geographical barriers. I'm, I'm interested in that whole thing. So a, a Restoration and Regency seemed the best way to do it, to do the polar ends of that 170-year uh, uh, period. One of my two biggest uh, surprises and, uh, I suppose, moments of fixation uh, was discovering how dominant London was in, the, in this period. The other one was a, a, a similar sort of moment of fixation, was realising why the court was so scandalous. And Charles II, we think of him as the merry monarch, and we tend to think of it, it's a matter of his personal taste. And it's when you start to think through, why did he create his mistress's duchesses? You know, no one had ever done that before. It had been a very long time since there had been an English royal mistress, and people didn't really know what the form was. But then you start to think about, yeah, why were all these rakes suddenly creeping out of the woodwork like they had never existed before? Why does the king operate on a similarly rakish platform by creating his duchesses, uh, uh, his mistress's duchesses, and, and creating, having acts of, acts of parliament to make their sons uh, inherit titles, which was unheard of. And then you start to realize, hang on, this is a reaction against the 1650s. This is a reaction against Puritanism. This is a reaction against those moral people who felt so sanctimonious that they cut his father's head off in the case of Charles II. You know, Charles I was killed by the Puritans, exiled all these aristocrats, um, inflicted upon them the sort of greatest sort of stigma for their uh, simply being whom they were. So when they came back and were in the ascendancy, they wanted to show that they did not conform to moral standards, that they were prepared to flout every moral expectation of them. They were prepared to kick against the Puritans. Um, it's almost like punk in the 1970s, sort of through this rebellion of bad behavior. Uh, they wanted to make a very strong point. And Charles II's court in the 1660s has this punk aspect to it. So you've got Lord Rochester behaving absolutely extraordinarily badly. And a number of people, like Sir Charles Sedley and Lord Buckhurst, and behaving appallingly. But of course, the king also behaving appallingly in terms of uh, uh, his licentious conduct. And it's realizing there's this rebellion going on right at the top of society. We don't think of the people at the top of society as being rebels, but in the 1660s, they were. And that was this other point of fixation and realisation. I thought, wow, I can really work with that and, and explore that much further. So how was Charles II's return viewed by, by the people of the time? Well, I think it would be fair to say enormous relief almost everywhere. Of course, there were those diehard Puritans who looked at the return of the king as uh, going back to the bad old days, but they were in a minority because since Oliver Cromwell had died uh, in, in 1658, there had been a power vacuum. His son, Richard Cromwell, was unable to command the army and therefore resigned as protector of the realm. And there was this vacuum after he went too. So no one quite knew what was going to happen if the king didn't come back, uh, if Charles II didn't return. Uh, so when 
he did take the crown and the, the monarchy was restored, there was this enormous feeling of relief in that everybody could look forward to stable government and structure again. Uh, and that was really important because even if you don't like the structures, you do depend on them uh, to for, for, for business or for, for whatever particular um, uh, way you make your money in the world. Uh, so that return of structure, return of uh, authority was welcomed everywhere. And the actual um, uh, the procession through London was a time of great uh, joy and rejoicing. And how does it did this exuberance um, at his return? How did that? How did we see that manifest itself in everyday life? Well, right at the bottom, of society, you have the the return of things like baiting games, which were enormously popular. I mean, you might think of uh, uh, as I do, um, bear baiting and bull baiting as horrific and cockfighting as awful. But these were everyday sports that had been banned by the Puritans and now were allowed to return. Gambling, similarly, was something that had been banned by the Puritans and now could come back. And of course, the wealthy loved gambling. I mean, it's the absolute age of gambling. That huge amounts of money were put on horses. You're allowed to race horses again, um, on, on foot races as well. People gambled on all sorts of things and on cards. All these things had not been allowed under, under the Puritans. So at just that level, you find all sorts of recreations now being uh, possible. As you work through the various other areas of society, you see things like the moral courts, the church courts being uh, reinstated, and the hierarchy of the church being reinstated. So that um, things like the, the Adultery Act of 1650, which I mentioned earlier, that's repealed. And now if you got caught of a moral crime, you'd be taken along to a church court. And if you're found guilty, you're given a penance of standing in a white sheet. You're not hanged any longer. Things change. Things go back sort of to the way they were, but you can never really go back to the past. So life changes for everybody at every level of society. So in the early stages of your book, um, there's a, a key event in the Great Fire of London. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that influenced the early years of the period that you're exploring? Well, London is fascinating at this time because we tend to think of London as the capital of England uh, and uh, later of uh, the Great Britain and the United Kingdom, etc. But we forget how dominant it is at various times. And this is something, this is probably one of the two biggest sort of shocks I had in actually thinking this book through at the start. The dominance of London, if you compare the population of London to the population of the 10 next biggest towns and cities in England, you have this enormous shift in the late 17th century. So, for example, in the Middle Ages, London is 60% of the size of the next 10 biggest towns. In Elizabethan times, it grows until it's about 200% the size of the next 10 biggest towns. In the Restoration period, it's more than 400% of the size of the next 10 biggest towns. That's massive. It's never as much again. It dwindles back to 250%, 170% in the Victorian times, and today it's about the same thing. It's been more or less 160, 170% of the size of the 10 next largest towns in England uh, ever, ever since uh, the early 19th century. So this period we're talking about, 1660 to 1700, London is absolutely dominant. So therefore, the burning down of its core in 1666 is, is crucial for 
yes, the, the sweeping away of all the old buildings and all the old ways of doing things and a lot of that tradition. But it's also crucial for the new building that comes out of it, because this is the pride of England in, in more ways than we can really appreciate today with our concepts of London. So although only 20% of London actually burnt, 13,200 houses went, uh, and a lot of churches, obviously, it's the old core of the city. And the traditional heart was taken out, and in its place, new architecture, far better architecture, elegant architecture, a real symbol of modernity. And that, of course, encouraged the expansion of London further and set the building model for the rest of England. So that when you look around an English town these days, you can tell the houses that were built before the 1640s, 1650s, because they are all timber-framed, uh, jetted out over the street. And you see the the the, the in the, around the 1650s, Mark, the, the new architecture emanating from really Covent Garden in London, Inigo Jones's uh, designs there. Um, these flat-fronted brick, uh, well-proportioned townhouses – and of course, as soon as the Great Fire uh, took place and wiped out the, the central core of uh, uh, London, then that became the norm. That became the standard. And no one wanted the old wooden style anymore. So in terms of permanence, elegance, architecture, sense of modernity, domestic living, a bourgeois way of life, that fire – and of course, it wasn't just one fire. There were fires all over England. That fire really sort of ignited uh, a, a sense of change and a new – way of living in, in England. And this modernity and, and this change is something that you explore throughout the book. And uh, you pinpoint that there was renewed scientific understanding. Can you tell us a little bit about those discoveries? Well, I think if you'd been um, a reader in 1665, when Robert Hooke produced Micrographia, it really would have been a, a, a absolute seismic shift in your understanding of how the world is when you saw the engravings that he had put in that book, because the most famous one is the flea. Um, Robert Hooke was, uh, uh, we use the word scientist, a natural philosopher would be the word they use. And he was paid, he was the first professional scientist in the world in many ways, because he was paid by the Royal Society to conduct experiments. Uh, and amongst his various experiments, he uh, played around with um, uh, microscopes, but he also could engrave. He was also a brilliant draftsman as well as an architect. And he put all his talents together to come up with this scheme of micrographia, whereby he showed what things like a flea looked like under a microscope. And if you looked at that book, you'd have suddenly realized there's all sorts of detail in the world that previously you had never imagined. If you think in terms of the horizons of awareness and horizons of knowledge, that that book, that microscopic sort of uh, uh, seismic or light bulb moment is probably a better word to use. That light bulb moment, it's it, it's going to excite you because it's not just what you can see in that on that page, that flea, all those details. It's all the other things you realise that you haven't been able to see up to now. So a whole world of opportunity becomes open to uh, the intelligent reader. And the people who went along to lectures at the the the, the, the um, Royal Society, etc. Now, of course, that is just the horizon of how small you can see, how far you can see into the the, the minute. There's also the horizon of how you can far you can see into the heavens, and therefore the the scientific threshold, as it were, or the horizon expands far outwards as the Royal Observatory is um, uh, built and. Uh, 
people like, well, clockmakers like Thomas Tompion, England's greatest clockmaker historically, develop timepieces whereby scientific experiments can actually be measured. If you have an accurate timepiece, like the ones that Tompion created for the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, which are a- accurate to a second a day, you can start to do experiments with astronomy and understand the universe far better. And of course, you can see where all this is going. It ends up with Isaac Newton in uh, Principia Mathematica in 1687, laying down the mathematical ways to understand physics. So in the course of a relatively few years, we go from um, a society which looks to the church to explain how the world works, to one that not only understands it along scientific principles, but actually can calculate how the world works. So in terms of the how far you can see, how small you can see, and how much you can calculate of the world, this is an enormous age of change. And perhaps the, the archetypal change. We think of all this in terms of science itself, um, in, uh, in terms of calculating force and uh, uh, the, the mathematical principles of movement and bodies in space. But of course, it's very principle of calculating rather than praying uh, or understanding through God. Uh, is is implicit throughout the whole society. Science sort of seeps in to everybody's way of thinking so that when it comes to statistics, there are no statisticians before 1650. Then you have John Grant uh, playing around with the statistics of bills of mortality in London and calculating your likelihood to die of any diseases. And Edmund Halley also does the same thing with life tables, being able to create actuarial life tables, calculating how long you're likely to live. Uh, Fire, we come back to fire. If you uh, wanted to preserve your property against fire before 1666, you tended to look to God, you prayed that your uh, uh, goods would not be damaged. As a result of the fire, various people start insurance companies so that rather than praying that they won't be burnt down, you now insure that they won't be down by paying a premium. So mathematics just infuses itself or it becomes infused in everyday life uh, from the scientific sharp end, which very few people would have understood, right the way through to the popular end. And what's remarkable is that yet while these uh, light bulb moments are happening, uh, there are also people being executed for witchcraft. Yeah, superstitions die hard, especially in Scotland, uh, where it's the 18th century when they burn the last witch in Scotland. In England, we don't burn witches, we we hang them. Uh, But the last witch is known to be hanged uh, in Devon and in the 1680s, and the last death sentence for uh, witchcraft is handed down in 1685 in uh, in Exeter. So, um, yeah, superstitions die hard. I find it really quite quite staggering that we are so uh, convinced that witchcraft exists in 1685 that a death sentence can be handed down by a London judge, and yet. That's only two years before Principia Mathematica, the, the, the foundation work of modern science, is published. But of course, when you start to think about it, you realize there does actually have to be quite an overlap. You can't stop believing one thing and then start believing another thing as if there's no join. With all the people in society, there is, of course, going to be a large overlap as some people get to grips with a new way of thinking and other people hang on to their old ways of thinking. And of course, when you look at society over large periods of time, very often you find that it isn't 
people changing their minds. It's one generation dying out and being replaced by another, which has never subscribed to their views. So it, it is quite a, uh, a period of striking contrasts. And I think of it in terms of tipping points, the tipping point from superstition through to calculation, and the tipping point in so many other ways, uh, which introduces what we tend to loosely call rationalism uh, in a modern sense. Uh, do you think that the Restoration era then is a, a period that might sometimes be um, forgotten or misunderstood, given the enduring popularity of um, the Tudor era, for example? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the vastly underrated. I, I uh, wrote in BBC History magazine that the year 1660 is probably the second most important date in British history, the one that we should all know alongside 1066, because it's that date from which we have the monarchy that we uh, still have today. The constitutional monarchy is really uh, a, a product of that revolution. Um, our traditional ways of life and our uh, adherence to that way of life goes back to then. But that is just the framework for all this scientific revolution, real revolution, that is going on in these, these years, 1660s through to the 1690s. It's the most tremendous uh, time of change so that uh, you can look at late, the late restoration society, what I call late restoration society in this book, the 1690s, and feel relatively at home with the way things go on, with the, the coffee houses and uh, the society as it is. Uh, you can recognise it. You can understand its values. You can understand its reasoning. Whereas you look back at Elizabethan England, it's very, very different. So although we sort of champion Elizabethan England largely because it's the age of Shakespeare and the, 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 the Queen herself, um, it's actually much more alien. And restoration sees this birth of modern society in a big way, very fast. And I, I do think that we really ought to understand it far better. Um, and it is just as important as the, the sort of the next great stage, which is the, the when society became transport uh, orientated in the in the nineteenth century, the, the the industrial revolution period. So, yeah, we, I think we really do miss out by not understanding the restoration properly. And it also suffers because. Well, Pepys' diary has just dominated social life to such an extent. It is so detailed. It is such a magnificent work that it's almost like we don't have to bother with social history for the next 100 years after that because he goes into such depth for the 1660s. It's very difficult to find social historical works which deal with the 1670s, 80s, 90s, early 18th century. There's a dearth of them because Pepys overshadows everything. Um, and of course, that centres everything in London, and that correlates with Charles II and his mistresses, which is a, another story. And we don't really get to understand what's happening in England in this period. The Times described you as a, as a historical truffle hound, and you fill your writing with these very personal accounts. You take people into bedrooms and into doctor's rooms. What do you think are the, the benefits of drawing people into history in this way? And what do you think makes a, a good anecdote that really brings people into this, this time? Oh, well, it's, it's about the people. I mean, what makes a good anecdote is a really good question. Um, the... The thing I'm often saying when I'm talking about what are we doing when we're doing history, I, I, I constantly, constantly emphasize the very simple point that it's not about the past. It's about people. And of course, history is our way of approaching people in time, all times and all places. So it's like an expanded uh, version of studying ourselves. Of course, in different times, we behave differently, we think differently, we have different standards. But what makes a good anecdote is the 
personal element that can either be juxtaposed with now in a shocking way or can be juxtaposed with the way we do things now in a way that is almost reassuring across the centuries. So if I give you a fact from the 1680s or 1660s, Charles II drinking a tincture of human skull in alcohol for medical properties, you immediately juxtapose that with now to think, God, how crude Charles II was. You know, we would never drink human, powdered human skull in alcohol. It's, 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 it's one of those things we, you know, we get some uh, emotional impact from it or some shock value from it. And likewise, when you come across something which is very, very modern from that period, say the, the, the post office going along and paying uh, postage for a certain distance, and you realize how regulated it was, and you have cashier's desks in the general post office, and you pay your couple of pence or whatever it is, uh, three pence if it's going more than 80 miles. And you think, well, how modern? And you think something that hasn't changed across all those centuries also has this sort of effect. It's being able to surprise people with what is different and what is similar. Um, and drawing out those elements of life that they can relate to, and then it says something about the milieu then, uh, which we can understand through the way we live today. The way I structure my history books, the time travellers books, this is, uh, is wholly un unlike any other history, whether it's academic or other popular history. When it comes to a time travellers book, you don't start with the evidence. You start with the person who's going to read it in the end. You start with the person who is imaginatively going to travel to this medieval, Elizabethan, or Restoration world, because that person is going to have questions in their mind. What am I going to see when I get there? What am I going to wear? How will people talk to me? Uh, what money do I need to be uh, able to spend? What is it worth? What can I buy with it? And all these questions. These questions are integral to the book. So I start off with that philosophy of what does somebody want to know? And then I do a, uh, the conjuring act, as it were, of trying to think, where am I going to get information which is accurate, information which is um, representative of large numbers of people, so information where I really do know its limitations, and then how am I going to compare that with the changes in society and bring out the fact that from one year to the next, it actually might not be the same answer to that question. So it is a totally different approach, and it raises all sorts of really fascinating, question, fascinating questions, which frequently academics have never thought of, and very frequently your popular historian, traditional popular historian, has never thought of. So they are quite unusual and unique books in that respect. The bigger picture, which I'm aiming for, of course, isn't expressed in the books. It's to get people to understand humanity over time. We don't just have the... Well, we have no obligation to live as we are living at the moment. In fact, we know we will not be living like this for uh, decades from, uh, um, down the line. People live differently in different times. And the prospect of greater hardship doesn't mean the end of society. We have lived through incredible hardships over the uh, past generations, past centuries. We've survived the Black Death without law and order breaking down. We, we've survived the plague of... 300 years after that, we've uh, survived the terrible working conditions of the Industrial Revolution. We, we've adapted as a society, and we have learned to deal with what's available and make the best of our resources. And we have lived multi-textured lives and enjoyable lives in all different uh, contexts. What I really want people to understand is that the way we live today is a transitory thing. There are different ways of living, and they need to understand 
those different ways of living to understand what we, humanity, really is and are. That was Ian Mortimer. The Time Traveller's Guide to Restoration Britain is out now in the UK, published by Bodley Head. In the US, it's also available, published by Pegasus. And Ian wrote a piece on the restoration for the April edition of BBC History magazine, which is available as a back issue in both print and digital formats. Meanwhile, our June issue has just gone on sale. It contains articles on a rebellion in Roman Britain, letters from the Tudors, the Six-Day War, and Jane Austen, among many other things. You can get hold of our June issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our second interview this week is with Professor David Armitage, a historian based at Harvard University. David's most recent book is Civil Wars, A History in Ideas, which explores how this form of conflict has developed from ancient times to the present. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, caught up with him at this year's Jaipur Literature Festival to find out more. I'm David Armitage. Uh, I teach history at Harvard University, and my most recent book is called Civil Wars, A History in Ideas, which traces uh, arguments about civil war from ancient Rome to the contemporary world up to and including Syria. Why did you decide then to write this particular book? It began about 10 years ago at the height of the Iraq War, 2006-2007. There was a big public debate, especially in the US, but also in the UK, about what to call the surging violence in Iraq at that point when six or 7,000 people a month were dying. Some people wanted to call it a rebellion, others an insurgency, still others wanted to say it's a civil war. That term civil war became highly politicized in debate at the time. And I was following that debate with interest as someone uh, who uh, spends much of his time researching political ideas and how they are used. And I thought this was a particularly interesting example of that. At just the same moment, I was out in Southern California doing research on the papers of Francis Lieber, a 19th century lawyer who wrote the first code of the laws of war for the Union Army in the American Civil War. And one of his letters... I was reading was about how difficult, indeed almost impossible, it was for him in the 1860s to define what was a civil war in the midst of that greatest American conflict that we call the US Civil War. So it's sometimes said that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I think that's Mark Twain. And this was one of those occasions where history really rhymed for me. I was reading the newspapers, watching on TV this debate about what's a civil war in Iraq. As I was going back to my desk, reading these letters, what's a civil war in the US in the mid-19th century? And I thought, there's something here. These are two 
stopping points or data points in a much longer story. And I thought, I have to tell that story. How would you define a civil war? And how does doing so somehow affect what happens on the ground, if you like? Well, I'll answer those questions in reverse order uh, in order to say why I will not answer this first one. Uh, The second one is the more important one and the one I'm interested in. As I went through uh, the examples of the US, quotes civil war, I found very quickly that uh, it had many different names during the conflict itself. It wasn't officially until... Uh, 1907, I think, that the uh, U.S. Congress officially decided that it should uh, ever after be called the U.S. Civil War. Up to that point, after uh, the defeat of the Confederacy, it was known as the Rebellion. So the 80-volume history of the uh, conflict was known as the War of the Rebellion. Abraham Lincoln uses the term rebellion six times more often during the U.S. Civil War than Civil War. Uh, And that showed, I think, very clearly that it was a highly political act to define a conflict as a civil war or as a rebellion. And these uses of terms are almost always about legitimacy and authority. War is a highly formalized, indeed legally defined form of conflict, uh, more orderly, more prestigious in a paradoxical way than uh, riots or rebellions or other kinds of violence. So there's a lot at stake in using or not using that term civil war. And that's really what the book is about, about those moments where there's fierce political and sometimes legal contestation about whether or not to call a war a civil war. And so that's the long answer to your second question. The short answer to your first question is I have no definition of civil war because I've learned uh, from writing this book uh, how uh, how impossibly difficult indeed simply impossible it is to define a civil war in such a way that that definition will be accepted by all parties. Its application will not be political or ideological. It's always political. It's always ideological. It's always conflicted. Uh, So I don't attempt uh, to wade into that battlefield myself, but I'm interested in all of the earlier examples where people had difficulty doing that. And so the ultimate message of the book is uh, we want to be very, very careful about the use of this language because a great deal hangs upon it in terms of legitimacy and authority, but also ultimately the lives of tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people who suffer in conflicts where there are battles about the boundaries of that conflict, who's involved, on what terms, and how they are to be treated. And that's why civil war is such Uh, a delicate uh, topic to deal with, but also such an explosive one as well. This is also a fascinating subject because it covers such a broad, (coughs) long range of history. Are there there trends that we can usefully identify, common causes, things such as that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, something that really surprised me uh, writing the book was uh, how influential and for how long Uh, Roman conceptions, conceptions coming out of uh, ancient Rome from the first century onwards, how how lastingly influential and important they would turn out to be deep into the 19th century, even into the 20th century. The Romans, I argue, invented civil war. They obviously weren't the first people to have suffered internal conflict, but they were the first to call it war and to call it civil war in the literal sense of a war between fellow citizens. The Latin word is kives, from which we get all those words, civil, civility, civilization. They're all tied up together etymologically and I think ideologically as well. 
so that, that Roman conception of a civil war as a formal conflict among fellow citizens uh, that takes place under the laws of war and so has a level of formality to it proves lastingly influential. The Roman idea also has at its heart the central conception that a civil war is a battle for control of the political community itself. Uh, so in the Roman case, it's a battle for political control in the city of Rome, which authorities, military or civilian or non-military, uh, which political parties might uh, uh, take control. And that, that Roman idea of two sides, usually two sides, fighting for control of a single political community, I think is the longest running conception of civil war. It gets much murkier and much more complicated, especially in the 20th century, when most civil wars are what um, scholars of international relations and political science call internationalized civil wars. That is, uh, they don't happen just within the boundaries of a single state, nor necessarily between only two parties. They often draw in uh, neighbors, neighboring countries, or increasingly, as we know in uh, the, the contemporary Middle East, they draw in uh, fighters, uh, uh, terrorists uh, from far, far away, and also they drag in or they attempt to drag in external powers, the US, the UK, Russia, for instance, as well. So uh, that idea that a civil war takes place only within a single political community um, has really been, I think, overtaken now by contemporary civil wars, at least three quarters of which we would call internationalized because both they draw in outside powers and they, they spill over the borders of the contending country, uh, especially through refugee flows. So th think of Syria today. Uh, more than half of the population of Syria has been physically displaced. Uh, 14 million, 15 million, the count keeps rising, um, refugees moving out of Syria uh, to neighboring countries across the Mediterranean uh, into Turkey, to Europe, for instance. This is a war, a civil war, which has become internationalized and is a conflict uh, that will affect probably the, the future of uh, the Middle East, uh, Asia, uh, and uh, West Asia, and uh, Europe for two generations to come, I think we can probably imagine. So another interesting trend is the shift from Western countries to countries elsewhere in the world. What do you think has caused that movement? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's a, a, lo a long-running series of developments. I think most scholars who study uh, civil wars over the long run would probably say there's a major step change that takes place after the Second World War, uh, coincident with decolonization in particular. One of the uh, clearest patterns, it seems, in terms of, uh, if not direct causation, then certainly correlation in the origins of civil war is the proximity of exiting an empire or secession. And that tends, usually within a year to five years, to generate another conflict for control or another secessionist group within that territory. Now, of course, this is not exclusively the case in the post-Second World War period. The clearest set of uh, other set of examples of this are in uh, uh, Latin America, especially Spanish America in the 1810s, 20s and 30s, that those anti-colonial, anti-imperial conflicts uh, led in almost all cases to uh, civil wars for control uh, within particular countries or the fission of existing parts of the Spanish Empire, which had become independent and then broke down into ever smaller units. In a way, I think we can see the US Civil War as a very, very slow motion version of exactly that process. Uh, the 13 colonies break away in 1776. They wait 
more than 80 years, nearly 90 years to have their civil war, but the pattern is almost identical, again, to what happens in Spanish America in the intervening decades, and then what happens across the world uh, in uh, the latter part of the 20th century. So I think we can say uh, that the impact of decolonization and anti-imperial movements has um, in some ways unleashed uh, various forms of pent-up violence which have been exported by the West through the mechanisms of empire to the rest of the world and then have often turned in upon uh, the post-colonial societies which have been generated. Here we are, of course, in India today. Uh, think of the process of partition uh, as a very clear and perhaps very early example of that. Think of the Arab-Israeli war in those same years immediately after the Second World War. That seems to be uh, a very clear uh, pattern of uh, at least connection and correlation, if not direct causation uh, for civil war. And then uh, the other side of the coin is, of course, the decline of interstate war, war between conventional states. Some scholars have talked about a so-called long peace, which expands outwards from Europe and North America uh, to other parts of the world, again in the period after the Second World War, but increasingly after 1989, where uh, at this moment, I think it's true to say at this particular moment where we sit in January 2017, uh, the only ongoing war which has generated uh, a measurable number of casualties between two states is the uh, contention between India and Pakistan over Kashmir. It's a relatively small number of deaths, uh, but it's the only ongoing, as it were, hot conflict between two states presently. Having studied civil wars in such a big scale, are there any particular conflicts that have been revealed in a new light for you or that you think are particularly interesting in this context? Well, I think one of one of the benefits of uh, looking at this over what historians call the long durée, that is over long range, in this case over just over 2,000 years, is precisely that, that you put um, familiar uh, conflicts or sets of events into unfamiliar perspectives. So... Um, for instance, the American Revolution, as Americans call it, um, was known in the early 1770s as the American Civil War, uh, a war among those people in British North America in that period, uh, but also often conceived of as a fraternal or familial conflict around the entire Atlantic world within the British Empire, so a civil war within the British Empire. It's certainly not original to me to make that claim about the American Revolution, but a lot of the scholarship on the American Revolution has pushed in that direction recently to see it as a series of local civil wars, in particular colonies turning into states, as well as a larger pan-Atlantic or even global civil war within the British world itself. So I think that's, uh, that's certainly one conflict which, which changed its meaning quite radically uh, uh, the U.S. Civil War as well, uh, to think about that in this long-range context, to see it as uh, being parallel to and in some sense a successor of those wars of independence and civil wars in Spanish America, uh, rather than as uh, the way it's usually seen as the harbinger of modern industrialized warfare. It's certainly that, but it's continuous with other earlier patterns of warfare in the 19th century as well. Uh, I also learned, which I should have known but didn't know before, that the U.S. Civil War per capita uh, was certainly not the largest um, uh, most bloody conflict of, even of the mid-19th century. That was the um, uh, the, the, the Taiping Rebellion in China in the same time, which per capita, uh, in per capita terms, was, I think, three times, I, I forget the exact figure, but certainly much, much greater in terms of its impact and more lasting in terms of its impact, uh, even in the U.S. Civil War. So uh, these kinds of perspectives where global comparisons, but also long-range uh, comparisons allow you to put 
particular conflicts into larger patterns or to, as it were, put them in their place to see them uh, in relation to other more complex or more destructive complex conflicts, I think is tremendously important. And then again, to be able to see continuities uh, that are otherwise invisible if you only study a five-year period or a 10-year period, if you pull out the focus, you can see personnel, ideas, techniques, parallels, historical memories as well, which come back to haunt uh, those who fight within particular civil wars. This is the kind of question of which historians, I think, are rightly wary. But do you think studying this in a long-view way can help us work out solutions to contemporary conflicts? Well, I hope at the very least uh, my, my work as a historian will have some impact if it allows those who, for example, make policy uh, about contemporary conflicts, uh, whether it's in uh, the, the State Department or the Foreign Office or their equivalents around the world, those who uh, set the rules of the laws of war uh, for uh, contemporary conflicts, whether they're civil wars, uh, international, arm, non-international armed conflicts as international humanitarian lawyers, uh, or those who write the military manuals for major um, armies around the world. I hope my work will be done if they uh, uh, treat with more care what seem to be often to them the more hard-edged definitions of what is or is not a civil war, uh, can help them have some humility, in particular in listening to the voices of those on the ground who know better what is happening to them and to their communities rather than looking from 30,000 feet and trying to have clean, hygienic, antiseptic definitions of the boundaries of civil war. An example I use in the book is um, the the conflict in Syria. In its early months, 2011-2012, it took the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, I think more than seven or eight months, to give an official determination that what was happening in Syria was a non-international armed conflict, the term of art in the international community for what the rest of us would call a civil war. By that time, 17,000 people had already died in Syria. Uh, and, of course, people in Syria themselves were talking in terms uh, of a civil war, an internal conflict, a rebellion, even a revolution in, in some cases. Uh, and that mismatch between uh, what people on the ground understand to be happening and what people far away um, in uh, international organizations understand that conflict to be, it's that gap that I'm interested in. I'm hoping it might be closed by some of the examples I have in my book, again, to, get, uh, to make uh, the people who populate the organs of international governance a little more humble uh, in terms of their activities in listening uh, to those on the ground as well. Uh, the other takeaways, uh, the motto for all historians in all times and places always is to answer any question, it's all very complicated. And I think that's the message of the book as well. That should be engraved over every history department. It's all very complicated, which is one reason why historians are not often called on for policy advice, because uh, those who make policy want uh, three, three to five bullet points. They don't want somebody saying, look, you need to scratch your head and think more about this, unfortunately. <laughs> and in terms of uh, readers outside of those spheres, how do you like this book to change how important they see civil war as a force in global history? Yes. Um, I think it's, it's now very well known among uh, scholars and academics that civil war is the most characteristic uh, form of large-scale organised violence in contemporary history and has been, again, since at least, at least the 1980s. This is not well known enough, I think, to a larger public as well. So I think if it raises consciousness about that, it's not just the headline conflicts like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, but uh, many other conflicts around the world. But also, uh, to flip this on, on uh, around, uh, there are some signs of hope as well, that the, the Americas, North and South, 
are now free of civil war since the uh, agreement uh, was ratified the second time around uh, to end the Colombian civil war, for instance. The Sri Lankan civil war uh, ended quite recently as well. So we have examples of very long-running and seemingly intractable conflicts uh, which have been brought to some kind of uh, major resolution as well. So I think although this, this will be a chastening story for many readers who have not had an opportunity before to put all the pieces of the picture together about the contemporary world, um, it's also a story which has some of these very important glimmers of hope to it as well. So um, I hope that would be one balanced message to take, take away from this global perspective, uh, but also to put it into very long-range perspective for people to think, well, uh, are we unusually violent at the moment or unusually peaceful? And there's a raging debate about exact, exactly that. Uh, there are some who argue that per capita, humans are more peaceful than they, they have ever been at any point in their history. That's one message which I think has got out to a wider public. Uh, my response to that would be that's somewhat morally obtuse in the sense that the, the numbers of individuals who are dying year on year, especially in civil wars, is larger than it has ever been. Uh, so unless you have a purely mathematical calculation of death rates, uh, we can't necessarily see uh, a trend towards peace when so many uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people are dying year on year, especially still, alas, in civil conflicts, despite these victories over civil war around the world. That was Professor David Armitage. Civil Wars, A History and Ideas is out now in the UK, published by Knopf. And in the US, it's published by Decalledge. For more global history, do be sure to check out our new sister title, BBC World Histories, which is available in a number of newsagents and bookshops, as well as by direct order from us. Head to historyextra.com for more details. OK, now just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets for our History Weekend events are currently on sale. This year's weekends take place at Winchester from the 6th to 8th of October and York from the 24th to 26th of November. Speakers include the likes of Roy Hattersley, Michael Wood, Tracy Borman, Alison Weir, Dan Jones and Ian Mortimer, who you heard from earlier. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do join us next time for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.